This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really uh, great show today. There's a lot to cover, as you can imagine. Interesting news coming out in terms of the idea of, you know, rapprochement, as we like to say, between France and Algeria. As our listeners and viewers know, France was a pretty gruesome occupier and colonial empire in Algeria for many, 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 many decades. And now there's going to be some sort of, quote, partnership or increased rapprochement. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Again, the apartheid state continues to make noises about interfering with U.S. foreign policy yet again. We're going to talk about the foreign minister and prime minister uh, telling the United States that they should scrap the Iran nuclear deal. Kind of an interesting story afterwards, Jamal, is uh, NASA, well, they they were going to launch the Artemis rocket today. It got scrubbed because of weather. But what people don't know about is that the chief of exploration of the mission for NASA on this uh, on this incredible project of going to the moon and beyond is run by a Palestinian American. We're going to talk a little bit about her role in getting the United States to the moon and beyond. But before we get to all that, Jamal, we're going to watch a really great interview that you did with uh, Ramzi Baroud. He's going to discuss his new book, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. This is co-authored with Ilan Pape, a very interesting kind of book and interview that you did with uh, Ramzi. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, as you've mentioned, uh, Our Vision for Liberation, uh, Ramzi Baroud uns- underscores what has kept Palestinians so resolute of pursuit of justice across generations. Uh, just so the, the book the book has a collection of essays of, of those Palestinians. And so let's, uh, let's hear from uh, Ramzi Baroud. When Israel was founded 74 years ago, Palestinians marked this as their Nakba or catastrophe, which saw the methodical destruction of hundreds of Palestinian villages and the killing and mass transfer of the indigenous people by the Zionist colonial settlers. This continues on today with Israel intent on erasing Palestine from historical memory. Nevertheless, commitment and support for justice in Palestine has not abated but rather continued and grown steadfastly. In his book of engaged Palestinians throughout the world, Our Vision for Liberation, Ramzi Baroud underscores what has kept Palestinians so resolute of pursuit of justice across generations. Ramzi Baroud was born in the Nusrat refugee camp in the Gaza Strip. He's an internationally syndicated columnist and editor of the Palestine Chronicle, Welcome to Arab Talk, Ramzi. Thank you for having me, Jamal. Pleasure. First of all, I want to thank you uh, and congratulate both of you and renowned historian Elan Pape for compiling these essays. There are many excellent books about the history and political background that enabled the colonization of Palestine. But perhaps this book is unique in showcasing Palestinian intellect and accomplishment that the media seems intent on making invisible. Tell us a a bit about your own voyage and what brought you to want to publish this book. 
Thank you so much, first of all, of, uh, for taking the time to read the book and, and, and to discuss it with me. Um, actually, my voyage started in that very refugee camp that you refer to, Nusayrat, in the Gaza Strip. I grew up in an environment uh, where we lived under constant Israeli siege, Israeli military occupation. Uh, death and destruction was part of our everyday reality. But also, there's another side to that story. Uh, it was also an environment of great intellect, ideas, intellectual resistance of all of its kinds. My father, uh, in particular, was uh, had uh, immense influence on me uh, as a socialist thinker uh, in the Gaza Strip during that time, who has been placed under travel restrictions and, and uh, by the Israeli occupation for many years. So I kind of grew up in this environment of what we call engaged intellectuals. These are people who are not just theorizing and speaking about solutions and visions and ideas with no real connection to reality. We are talking about people who are very much involved in the everyday acts of resistance, regardless of the kind of resistance we are talking about, be it armed resistance, being popular resistance, be it uh, intellectual resistance, education, music, art, and, and so forth and so on. That's That was the case until I left Palestine in my early 20s. And I found myself in a completely different intellectual uh, uh, circle where Palestine is often discussed uh, as, as a theory, as an academic subject, uh, as, as uh, just uh, part of a larger political discourse and geopolitics and all of that with no real attachment to reality. So it's like for me, as if we are talking about two different Palestines here. And I know that this is not just for me, but for you know many, many Palestinians who have this kind of, kind of this dual experience living in Palestine, living in the West Bank, in Gaza, Palestine 48, in South Lebanon, in Yarmouk and other refugee camps in Syria, where we kind of saw a different manifestation of Palestine than the Palestine that we found at the University of Chicago and the University of Washington and, 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 and you know, in American news and Western media. It's a completely different reality. So for me, the challenge, and for many years, has been how do I convey that narrative of the real people living the real experience. And I have all of my books really been dedicated to people's history. This book in particular was different mm -hmm. because what we wanted to do and to say is that we Palestinians cannot be just seen as victims. We are also can be the source of, of that intellect. We can, we can emanate and we can uh, provide ideas to what needs to be done in order for us to obtain our freedom. We don't need to wait for someone else to offer us solutions. We can do that on our own. As a matter of fact, that was going to be my, my next question, because at the beginning of the book, you talk about the tendency for Palestinians to lament the failing of other Arab countries to rise to defend the cause. But you counter that with the famous quote by Sheikh Guevara, that it is the people who liberate themselves. Is that what you wanted to, to speak to? That's precisely what I wanted to speak to. And also because of the added experience and understanding of other historical uh, 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 national liberation experiences around the world. Um, I don't think there is a single, a single experience of one nation that has been truly liberated by outsiders. 
uh, whether at an, uh, you know, in terms of material support or uh, in terms of ideas, intellects, visions. It is real liberation is homegrown. It's always been the case. It's been the human experience, uh, not just uh, modern uh, historical experiences, but throughout history. Uh, Palestine cannot be the exception, and it's not the exception. And that's what we really needed to delineate in the book. Um, and, and, and so the question that we really raised here is if you take that question to engaged organic Palestinian intellectuals living that experience on a daily basis and ask them, what, how do you see the flow of history? How do you see your country becoming free and liberated? Uh, but, but don't just answer that question at a theoretical level. Answer that question based on your own, your own personal experiences in whatever field of study, work, and activism, be it historians, be it diplomats, be it artists, singers, uh, uh, be it grassroots, uh, 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 community mobilizers in the West Bank, uh, and so forth and so on. Um, and the answers are something that we are completely not used to uh, in discussing the Palestinian-Israeli discourse. Let's talk about uh, the vision uh, for what you wanted this collection to represent to leaders. Uh, I recognize some of the names or have actually met some of them, Hanin Zogbi, Zogbi, Ghada Karmi, Samuel Ariyan. But I see that you include a very diverse cross-section, both ge- geographically and in area of expertise. Tell us what guided your selection. That's, that's a, a very good question, but also a very difficult question to answer. Um, and let me just give you a little uh, preface uh, regarding this, this question. You know, uh, once in a while, we ask our friends, our um, solidarity activists in various parts of the world, you are holding a conference in which you don't have a single Palestinian and the conference is about Palestine. Where are the Palestinians? And, and the answer is, well, we looked. You know, there are not so many Palestinians who can address this issue. And I've always known that this cannot possibly be the right answer. Palestinian intellectuals, academics, activists, artists are everywhere. And in fact, there are, you know, Palestine is one of the most educated countries in the Middle East, in fact, in the world with the lowest uh, illiteracy rate uh, uh, among adults anywhere in, in the entire region, especially among women. Yet somehow you kind of get this impression that Palestinians are just simply incapable of articulating a fathomable discourse from a Western point of view. So that was really that we found extremely interesting is that when we began compiling names that would fit the various topics within the book, the challenge wasn't not finding enough people, was finding way too many people and having to go through the arduous task of having to cut down the names to the people that we really felt can speak uh, in, 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 in the most convincing and in, in empowering and powerful way about these particular topics. Um, we did not choose names because they are big names or famous uh-huh. names. Or We chose people because uh, of really the, the, the kind of experience they've had, the role they played at what critical juncture in Palestinian history. So, so were, were all the essays written with a prompt? For this uh, anthology in particular, did it vary ago- according to the circumstances of each contributor or was it uniform? It, it, is, it is both, really, because the idea here was to 
to write essays that are in, in that that are conceived within the personal experience of the person writing them. So I'm not just interested in what X, Y, and Z thinks about this particular issue, let's say education in Palestine or human rights in Palestine. I'm also interested to know how that person himself or herself interacted with that very issue. So that means I need to know everything about you, well, as much as possible, um, your upbringing, your family, your early ideas, how these ideas have changed and and morphed and evolved throughout the years uh, and so forth. Um, so that that's one thing. But what we ended up having is that despite the fact that these Palestinians come from various ideological backgrounds, religious backgrounds, definitely very diverse geographic backgrounds, but also class differences, yet somehow it felt as they are all contributing to the same vision, despite the fact that they did not did not coordinate. And some of them requested, can we talk to one to one another? And the answer was no, uh, because that kind of defeats the whole purpose of the book. So I, I was going to ask you actually about uh, what was your criteria for organizing and categorizing the essays? Did you, did you decide on them in advance uh, of uh, selecting the contributors or did it become apparent uh, to you after you read them all? Like who, who the placement, the, you know, how how you were going to organize it all together and 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 weave it to to have this nice flow in it right so it it began conceptually we came up you know what we perceived from an academic point of view to be a valid approach you know let's look at history let's look at language let's look at society and so forth and so on but once we start assigning names to to topics we began realizing that a lot of these things would have to be reworked. Some of the concepts would have to be rewritten. So yes, it began conceptually, but it began evolving in an organic way based on the individuals we located for these topics. And that's how we ended up with this kind of mixture between something that is conceptually valid, but at the same time has developed to meet the um, the, the actual reality of the people that we are actually talking to. Can you give uh, f- uh, provide a few examples of people who speak uh, in this book to illustrate how diverse the perspectives are that you include? You have people involved uh, in preservation of culture, such as Tatris, uh, weaving uh, politics, archaeology, and so on. Right. So, so Palestine is not, is not a, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's not... I am pro-Palestine, I'm, I'm anti-Palestine. It's not a reductionist term that, you know, a feeling that you have good or bad. Palestine is not a one-state versus two-state solution, and Palestine is not Hamas versus Fatah. Palestine is far more diverse and far more rooted in history and in culture and in reality than all of this. Palestinians know this, but others quite often do not, unless they are truly immersed in Palestinian culture. So if you are talking about resistance, for example, resistance is not about guns and bullets. Uh, If it's about guns and bullets, there are more guns and bullets with the Palestinian Authority, for example, than in Gaza. But you don't see so much armed resistance in the West Bank as much as you see in Gaza. So obviously there is something else involved in shaping the concept of resistance. So we needed to expand all of these Elements, for example, Tatris, embroidery. How is embroidery 
And how is the Palestinian thilb in particular, the traditional Palestinian dress for women, how is it part and parcel of an attempt at cultural preservation? How does it interact with Palestinian identity? Why is it a symbol of resistance? And why is it very important? In order for us to do that, we uh, talked to a collective of Palestinian uh, uh, embroidery uh, makers uh, in, in the UK and in Palestine who communicated to us how they use embroidery as a form of cultural preservation. For example, uh, on the uh, section called Origins and Memories of Liberation, for example, we wanted to talk about not Palestine as Palestine 48, you know, because Palestine, believe it or not, did not exist the moment that the Zionist movement was formulated in Europe. And it wasn't the Zionists who put us Palestinians on the map. Palestinians have existed for thousands of years prior to the existence of the Zionist movement. So the first question is, let's talk about that Palestine, the Palestine that existed prior to the, the, the Zionist movement. And that's where uh, uh, quite a famous Palestinian archaeologist, Professor Hamdan Taha, came to talk about the role of archaeology in liberation. So it was kind of almost like a threat. You kind of start in a certain way and you kind of move uh, in, in a logical direction uh, that, that, you know, from there we went to, okay, so now we have our history. How do we articulate it? That's what Professor Ibrahim Oude came to talk about the pursuit of liberation through language. And then we talk about the media. And then we talk about the diaspora. Are these elements and concepts relevant to diaspora? We went all the way to Santiago, Chile, to talk about, uh, to Anwar Ma'luf, the head of the Palestinian community until very recently in Santiago, to talk to us about how all of these elements have shaped the collective understanding of his community of Palestine and Palestinian identity, and so forth. Uh, we try not to create divisions like we need this number of men, this number of women, not at all. But at the end of the day, we actually ended up with more female contributors than male contributors. But this was all done not for the sake of political correctness. It was all done organically. These are the people who are most qualified to discuss these issues. And this is what we ended up with. How has the book been received? Uh, uh, you received excellent reviews from many notable people, such as Angela Davis and and, and John Pilger. Uh, we were, you know, we were very blessed with that kind of. Uh, and and by the way, before I even tell you about that, I want to mention that we intentionally did not seek Palestinians to endorse the book. The Palestinians are the ones who are developing the narrative, and and people who outside Palestine in various solidarity movements around the world are the one providing the endorsement as if our way of saying a genuine, authentic Palestinian narrative on liberation has to be developed by the Palestinians themselves. And the solidarity movement is there to give us validation, to give us space, to create elements of intersectionality so that we can take that liberation message to the rest of the world and take it globally. And indeed, we were very blessed with the kind of uh, endorsements we received, uh, Rani Castro's, um, uh, Angela Davis in particular, uh, it was quite moving actually kind of seeing her message, not just saying this is a very good book, you should buy it, but saying something to the effect of, we need Palestinians to guide us 
uh, in the on the path of liberation, not just in Palestine but also globally. That meant the world uh, to us, knowing that indeed Palestinians have historically played a very important role in shaping the views of liberation movements throughout the Middle East. Uh, and in fact, throughout the world in the 50s, 60s, 70s, we recall the likes of Ghassan Kanafani uh, and many others who had that kind of global impact. Unfortunately, in recent years, the Palestinians have been relegated and confined to very specific, limited political discourse and language in Palestine itself. Seeing Palestinian intellectuals breaking free from these confines and taking their message globally, and the likes of Angela Davis validating that and seeing that as a return to the accurate role that should be played by Palestinian intellectuals was very, very validating. Before we go, tell us uh, about some of your other projects to further justice uh, for Palestine, for example, the Palestine Chronicle. Um, So the Palestine Chronicle began over 20, 25 years ago. It was a response to uh, this kind of tireless hunt for for, uh, mainstream media, you know, to tell a more accurate story about Palestine. Of course, it doesn't take a particular genius to realize that mainstream media will never be fair to Palestinians, simply because it's by definition... Uh, exist to, to serve the interest of those in power. And since Palestinians are not in power, mainstream media, corporate media will not come to our rescue. It is these programs like yours, it's the Palestine Chronicle, it's the Electronic Intifada, it is this kind of alternative media outlet that is set to create that paradigm shift, but slowly through grassroots uh, education, mobilization, and so forth and so on. We've been doing this for 25 years. We have uh, a French website, Chronique Palestine, uh, the most popular uh, website on Palestine in the French language from a Palestinian point of view, that is. And, and we just keep fighting this daily fight and we keep changing hearts and minds on a daily basis. And, and it is, it's working. I mean, we see the impact that this kind of alternative media is making in, in how it shapes the views of people in various classes, various communities and various countries around the world. Well, I should say that uh, you did not seek this Palestinian's endorsement of your book, but I am endorsing it. So the book is Our Vision for Liberation and Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out by Ramzi Baroud and Ilan Pape. We encourage people to go ahead and, and, and buy it and read it. And uh, Ramzi, thank you for coming on, on Arab Talk. Uh, it's a great pleasure to speaking to you. Thank you very much, Jamal. Thank you for the beautiful endorsement and and keep up the good work. That's the voice in the face of Ramzi Baroud, uh, co-authored with uh, Ilan Pape, a really interesting book, collected uh, essays uh, and articles on uh, liberation in the modern context of of Palestine. Um, it, so my, I mean, very interesting as usual with Ramzi Jamal. So my question to you, since you did the interview, is this, and excuse the pun, is this old wine in new bottles or did you feel like there's something new here? No, 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 it's it's definitely not. And actually, Ramzi Baroud basically quotes Che Guevara, which is basically liberation does not come from without, it comes from within. And so those are... Uh, 
you know, individual, I would say it's a collective of, of thinkers, architects, engineers, uh, you know, different Palestinians from different, different wake of life and also different ge geographical, as you know, Palestinians are spread all over the world giving, uh, you know, their, sharing their ideas uh, about, about the road to, to, to liberation. Yeah, and um, it's important that that message continue to be articulated. I'm, I was really, uh, am pleased to see that there's a collaboration between Ramsey and Ilan Pape, both really important thinkers in the modern context, broad range of discussion from, you know, Palestinians, in Palestine and in the diaspora kind of speaking about this, but um, kind of an interesting and timely uh, coming out of this book in the larger context, Jamal. And speaking of liberation, by the way, it seems that, uh, how, how, how do we say this, man? It's just like, would, do we, it's like, does, does the, do people who've been oppressed by a colonizer is there any opportunity to trust that colonizer when they make an attempt at rapprochement? We see, you know, historical evidence of this where it's failed miserably, obviously. And in the question of Palestine, obviously, we're not even close to that, having any rapprochement between, you know, an apartheid state uh, that is actively, uh, you know, oppressing an indigenous people. But... I, it's kind of interesting to hear what uh, Macron is doing in relation to Algeria now. Uh, makes me a little skeptical. I, I'm not sure what the Algerians think. Well, that, that's actually we'll talk about that because I've been there's a lot of thoughts floating around this issue, and so for our uh, listeners and viewers who are not uh, familiar with the situation. So Francis Macron basically seeks ties with Algeria beyond, and these are painful history ties with with Algiers, uh, you know, and that's the timing of it, because you mentioned about the timing. Yeah. This is uh, very important because this is, uh, there is an increasing demand for gas amid the war on, in, you know, in Ukraine. We talked about that right. many times. Right. And 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 rapprochement is is good if you apologize and make amends and pay reparation and and whatever. So we'll we'll talk about this because there has there have been signs of rapprochement or or I would say French overtures of their idea of rapprochement, but it's not the full picture because number one there hasn't been. And I would say there hasn't been an official apology. You talked about the decades, over 130 years of, of brutal French colonization of Algeria and the, and the death of, of an, over a million uh, through that, that whole, uh, whole process. Right. So uh, leading eventually to, to the bitter uh, war of independence that ended in 1962. I mean, the Algerians paid dearly, and, and, and that's why a lot of times the, there is a comparison going on between the last, you know, the, that, 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 they, that uh, the last colonization of the Middle East is now ongoing through Israel, and before that it was the war of independence of Algeria, and now... Right. They've managed to basically drive away 
And because that's kind of why we talk about those in 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 comparison, because they they were they both represented settler colonialism. There is colonialism, you know, which we know, like uh, taking over the country's resources, etc. But France really considered Algeria as part of exactly of France. Exactly, it, it literally annexed it and and had no intentions of leaving it forever. Right, and transferred its population there, living there, until they faced resistance, and and that's how they managed basically the Algerians to li- to to li- liberate themselves. So now. I don't. I, I don't mean the trust timing. It. You're talking about the ties with. Yeah, Algeria. I mean that's the timing. What are, are I mean, more... Macron is facing election challenges. Obviously, we'll talk about the price of oil. Algeria is rich in gas and oil, obviously. But I don't know, man. Uh, I don't see the reparations. I don't see the apologies. Algerians in France continue to face. Well, we have to talk about just the good and the bad because uh, Macron has attempted uh, multiple times to turn the page uh, with its former uh, colony in, 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 in 2017 before his election. And then again, we know how candidates say something and then they act differently exactly. when they make it. So in 2017, before his election, he describes French actions during the 1954 to 1962 war that killed hundreds of thousands of Algerians, Algerians say it's more than a million, million, as a crime against humanity. So that was kind of the first statement, basically, by a French leader to say that it was a crime against, uh, uh, you know, uh, humanity, against humanity. And and that declaration just won him maybe popularity in Algeria, but it was politically controversial and devastating for him in France. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because of the right wing in France and a lot of French nationalism. And yeah, and you have more than 4 million people of Algerian origins uh, living there. Uh, And then he provoked a storm. That's why I said there is kind of good steps and bad steps. Last year, when he ruled out issuing an official apology. So that was Macron, the candidate. Right. That right. that's just like you and me saying we, we apologize uh, or, or or you know uh, to Algeria or uh, you know it's a crime against humanity. He was a candidate. He was like a citizen citizen or city city one city one right city one right French uh, Macron and now he's president or President Macron. And he uh, he 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 ruled out issuing an official uh, apology and su- suggested Algerian national identity, identity sounds like a chapter from the Zionist book, did right. not exist before French rule. Unbelievable. Yeah, so he, he went from making a very uh, strong and good and excellent statement, kind of... To a, co- to, to a colonizing statement. Yeah. And so that kind of blew back in his face and Algeria withdrew its ambassador for consultations and it closed its airspace to French planes. See, we don't hear about this. Most people here in the United States don't know that that, that what happened really. Uh, They actually closed its airspace to French planes and uh, and complicated its uh, French military mission in the Sahel. So now... 
the French need Algeria. <laughs> Entire Europe needs Algeria. That's right. That's right. They need the oil. They need the gas. And they need, I guess, a broadening of their trade relationships. But, you know, my question is, will it really benefit the Algerians to have this kind of raw approchement with, with the French at this point? I mean, would they really trust Macron? Well, I cannot speak for Algeria, and they've had a meeting. He had he had a meeting with Algeria's president Abdel Majid Tiboun, uh, and they issued a joint statement and said the two governments would establish a joint committee of historians to study archives of the colonial era. So maybe that's kind of a step in the right direction. To right, we, you and I, I'm, I'm sure you watched the Battle of Algiers. That. Long, uh, one of the best movies, one of the best documentaries, which docu- was banned in France for for, <laughs> for 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 many years because it shows you. No, it was amazing, painful, painful, but really an amazing, amazing film. So yeah. maybe it's, it's it's a step in the right direction to yeah. show because up till today, yes, there are thousands of Algerians who went missing and their families don't know. What happened to them? Were they well? Well, uh, go, uh, yeah, but you killed? The, were they executed? Where, where did they bury them? The mass graves, etc. Exactly, so. mass graves uh, disappearing, and also what people don't want to talk about, the French don't want to talk about, is the systematic use of torture that the French uh, military and paramilitary utilized. Uh, on the Algerians during that period of time. I mean, it's right out of a playbook out of the apartheid Israeli regime in terms of how to go forth and, and attempt a, a brutal occupation. But the French were were merciless, Jamal. They ravaged uh, uh, Algeria. They plundered its natural resources. They have yet to apologize. There's no reparation that is being, there's no truth and reconciliation uh, process that's initiated. I I appreciate the fact that there's some discussion going on and, you know, they'll form a committee. But uh, Algeria is in the driver's seat right now because of their natural resources and their, you know, gas and oil, obviously. But if and we can't speak for Algerians, obviously, all we can all we can do is, you know, kind of offer a political analysis. And the Algerians are very smart politically, very smart people. They're not going to do a deal unless you know, a lot of these things are put into place. But it is important for people who are who are watching our show to have this larger historical context. Well, it's also very important for Algerians to know the truth and for the French to share with so the Algerian the French... government the, hist- the, the historical archives. Right. Uh, right. And I know many French privately. I've had many meetings with some French people and they are ashamed uh, about their past, but others actually, like I said, they deny it. They are in denial. And there is a major discrepancy. The French historians say that half a million civilians and combatants died uh, during uh, Algeria's bloody war uh, for independence. Uh, and, uh, and then they, and then the Algerian authorities say it's one and a half million were killed. And actually, Tuboon's office uh, this past October said more than 5.6 million Algerians were killed during the colonial period, stretching over the 130-plus years. Right. 
So at least let's let's you know let's come up with with the the facts. You know, I, well, I, I don't think France should keep burying its head in the sand and ignoring this bloody and dark chapter of its its history. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. But here here's another angle to it: that bloody and dark history is living itself out in France right now with the. Uh, uh, Algerian and Muslim population from North Africa in France right now. I mean, Macron, whatever you want to, whatever you want to describe him as a as a politician, you know, he's running on a he's running on a nationalistic uh, kind of uh, platform right now, and uh, you know they they're they've banned the hijab, uh, they've they've done some really outrageous things uh islamophobia runs rampant and is really uh nasty in terms of its racism against uh uh you know algerian you know descendant folks in france right now and you know that and immig- colonial- immigrants in in general basically well immigrants in general but you know and just when you go to France and you even to you know progressive uh, Paris, you see that kind of dark side of the colonial and nationalistic uh, French uh, racism and Islamophobia everywhere. So, I mean, I'm skeptical. Um, you know, I we want to support what 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 the Algerian people uh, want from this. We we kind of know what they want. They want an apology. They want uh, reparations and they want the truth. So, if those three things are are met and and the Algerians are comfortable with this, you know, we shall see. Moving on to the next uh, story, Jess, and this is something we talked about again and again, and going all the way. How many back times are we going to to, to Netanyahu's theatrics at the United you Nations, know, right. uh, hold, holding that? Uh, Drawing, cartoon, that cartoon bomb. Yeah, drawing yeah, that cartoon. To now, uh, the, the representatives of the uh, of apartheid Israel uh, are back at it, trying to drag the United States into war or into confrontation with Iran. Exactly. Trying to dismantle the agreement, and they're descending on in, on Washington in droves, Jess, uh, you know, Prime Minister wants to meet uh, with Biden and he met with him before and, and the same thing brought up the issue about Iran and now you have the Mossad chief uh, coming to D.C. to ramp up, ramp up pressure on the U.S. Uh, that's David Barnea who will visit right. uh, Washington uh, to really stop that uh, nuclear agreement uh, from happening, uh, and 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 not only this, but he's actually this guy because I've been reading about his uh, uh, press statements. He, he's attacking the Biden administration. He's been really right. disrespectful, criticizing right. the bad Biden administration's policy on the agreement, and said that he was certain a nuclear deal was done. I know, Jamal, we continue to talk about this. We've talked about it endlessly, you know, during the Netanyahu regime, <laughs> under this regime. Bottom line is, from my perspective, it's in the United States' best interest to do this deal with the Iranians. Full stop. I, and- I also, just a quick reminder, you know, so we end this topic and move on. It's, uh, you know, I mean, here's the 
funny thing, apartheid Israel is not, and I say is not a party of the nuclear non-proliferation <laughs> treaty, NPT, and has not accepted IEA safeguards. On or, 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 you know, monitors to come in and, and take a look at their nuclear arsenal, which and exactly, some people and, and, just described as the, you know, the third or fourth largest nuclear arsenal in the world. So, yeah, who are they to say? Exactly. And they have more than 100 nuclear warheads and, and we keep, they keep at it. And, and, and during Netanyahu, remember when we, we were talking, we were afraid that we're going to be dragged into a war. Well, here we go again, Jamal. The, the apartheid regime wants to act against the U.S. strategic best interests, as they have <clears throat> been historically and yet again, because it's in the U.S., as well as the Iranian interest, by the way, to do this deal. And so, you know, we shall see. I, I think that the Biden administration is going to go forward with this deal because probably what the apartheid regime will do, Jamal, is what they've been doing the last number of years anyways, is doing these clandestine attacks to undermine the Iran uh, scientific community and the medical use of uh, their nuclear capability. But we shall see. That's right. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM, and, and here's a good story, Jess. Uh, yeah, it is a good know, story. NASA's chief of exploration mission and planning, Nujud uh, Fahoum Beransi, a Palestinian-American, Jess. It's amazing. And she's, she's brilliant. You got to be brilliant to get this position anyways, but she's, she's a brilliant astrophysicist and scientist, man. This is really a, really a great story. But how come we never heard about this before? Well, well now because more in, in the news we have that man or the Americans are returning to the moon. And not only, not only this, but it's going to be the first woman going to the, to the moon and the first person of color also going to the moon. So this is uh, first... Today they were supposed to have their first, the maiden flight, which is part of NASA's uh, Artemis program. Uh, I guess it was going to go and this happen. morning, but yeah, it got scrapped and may not happen again until Friday because of uh, a leak in one of the booster in one of the rockets. Yeah, this is in preparation, so this was spinning around the the moon. But in the long term, just this is in preparation to a trip to Mars. Exactly. So there is the the short term and 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 the long term, and and the person in charge uh, is uh, or one of the people in charge is uh, Nujud, and uh, I think when she took her picture for the NASA's website and people didn't pay attention, she wore Palestinian tatris. Wow! Just just yeah, just for her headshot inspired by Congresswoman Rashida, Rashida Tlaib. So there was a report about this a uh, couple of years ago. And, and, uh, and you know, she wore the blazer uh, embroidered with the, with the Palestinian Tatris. And also, if you go to her, uh, I think, Twitter account, she identifies herself, her position, as, uh, you know, chief, blah, blah, blah. 
Palestinian American, she puts it that Palestinian American on, on her Twitter account. And uh, of course, she's uh, based in Houston, Texas, and she's one of the leaders, basically the whole, I'm this, this whole, this whole program and a proud uh, and very, very proud, proud of her Palestinian heritage. I'm just surprised, Jamal, that she hasn't been attacked by APAC for some reason. They've dug up something and that she she remains free to to kind of represent herself that way. That's very impressive. We're proud of her. And, you know, this is this is it's great for for, you know, as she's a Palestinian American and let's just say Palestinian American woman. So she's got like three strikes against her. Right. She's an American. I mean, she's Palestinian. She's a woman. And, you know, she's part of this uh, community that gets attacked. So she's got a lot of strikes against her. Well, that's in their mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not going not gonna to stop Palestinians from no, selling. And, and it's not going to stop her. She's a brilliant, brilliant scientist. So uh, if you're not following uh, Nujud just on Twitter or for our listeners, I mean, she puts updates about the mission If, if uh, for those who are excited about... Uh, uh, man returning to the moon and who are excited about this whole space travel and then eventually landing a human being on Mars. Uh, I would uh, recommend just uh, following her Twitter feed. Yeah, definitely. We should follow it and we should uh, continue to be proud of this kind of accomplishment that she has. Well done. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.